As someone who raises chickens, it occurs to me that when Jesus says the master of the house might come back at cock crow, he really does mean any time. Some of you have chickens too, or neighbors with chickens. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us, for everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. For everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Thanksgiving is over, right? It's more than a week ago now. And so according to the secular calendar, what that means is that we're now well into the Christmas season. But in the Catholic Church, the Christmas season doesn't actually begin until December 25th. We have a whole other liturgical season between now and then called Advent. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and be one of those Grinches who tells you you shouldn't decorate your house before a a certain date. There are no liturgical laws about how we decorate our private homes, right? I have a couple of images of the nativity that I leave up in my house year-round. I figure if we can have a crucifix hanging on the wall year-round, why not have a nativity scene up year-round, right? So far be it for me to rob anyone of their anticipatory joy of celebrating the birth of Christ. But we just need to be mindful that our anticipatory joy of Christmas doesn't prevent us from celebrating the season that we are in now. The season that we're in now. For everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. We begin today the season of Advent. It's the beginning of a new liturgical year. So what is the reason for this season? The word Advent means coming. It's a reference to the coming of Christ. And the celebration of Advent is meant to do two things for us because there are two comings of Christ. First, it points us back in time to the Jewish people awaiting the Messiah with great anticipation so that we can celebrate with even greater joy the coming of that Messiah in history in our Christmas celebrations. That's one reason. But the other thing Advent does is it points us forward to the end of time and to the second coming of that same Messiah in glory. Jesus came the first time in humility as a little baby born in Bethlehem to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. And then he will come a second time in majesty to announce the fulfillment of that kingdom. His first coming was an invitation. The kingdom of God is near. Come to the wedding feast. His second coming will be a judgment. It will be a sorting out. The invitation has been extended, but we will be shown on that day either to be a part of his kingdom or to be apart from his kingdom. We will be judged, and the God who will judge us is love, and so we will be judged according to how we loved. That's the meaning of last Sunday's gospel from Matthew 25. 
Now, the thought of that second coming and that final judgment, it might fill us with a little bit of dread, a little good old-fashioned fear and trembling if we're not ready for it. But it doesn't have to, right? Because for those of us who are striving to live a Christian life, those of us who are already part of God's kingdom through our baptism, and we're, we're doing our best, we're trying to live the commands, and we're repenting when we fall, who are attending to our own works that the Master has assigned to us, as Jesus says in the Gospel. We're praying, we're worshiping, we're loving each other. For those who are doing these things, that day that Christ comes to judge the nations, that will be a day of great joy. Because on that day, we will see the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, descend from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And on that day, God will dwell with his people and we will see him, not veiled under signs and symbols as in the sacraments, but face to face, the beatific vision. And there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. What a great and glorious day that will be. I'm not afraid of that day. Okay, I'm a little afraid of that day. (laughs) But I'm mostly not afraid of that day. I can't wait for that day. That day's not here yet. It's something that we look forward to. And this, I believe, is the great meaning of Advent. Advent reminds us that we have something to look forward to. We have something to look forward to. And isn't it a wonderful thing to have something to look forward to? Everyone loves having something to look forward to. A vacation, celebration of an anniversary birthday, Christmas, retirement. We all like having something to look forward to. It has a marvelous tempering effect on us. It tempers both our sorrows and our joys. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's easy for us to see how having something to look forward to can temper our sorrows. I know my students right now at the university, this is a horrible time of year for them. They are so stressed out, guys. They are so stressed out with exams and the end of the semester and final papers and all of that, and I'm so glad that I'm not a college student anymore, and that's all behind me. But I tell them, I say, when I was a student, I can remember the one thing that got me through those last couple of weeks of the semester was knowing that there was a day after my last exam. I kept my eyes set on the day after my last exam, that all of the stress that I was under was just temporary, And for better or for worse, one day it would be over, right? We can think of our final judgment as our final exam. And there will be a day after that. There will be a day after. And for those of us who look forward to heaven, it reminds us that all of the stresses of this life, they're just temporary. All of our sorrow will come to an end. All of our pain will end. Illness Poverty, loneliness, oppression, injustice, violence, all of that is temporary. Even death is temporary. It will be over one day. And what will endure forever will be peace and joy and unimaginable love and fulfillment for those who love God. Those are the permanent things. We have that to look forward to. Isn't that marvelous? We will look back one day and say that all of the suffering of our life, 
all of the stress, all of our trials, that was worth it because it got us here. I'm looking forward to that day. So we can see how having something to look forward to can temper our sorrows, but but how does it temper our joy, and why would we want that, right? Don't you want all the joy you can get? Isn't joy a good thing? Well, there's one reason why you would want to temper your joy, and that's because doing so gets you an even greater joy down the road, right? I'm sure a lot of you have probably heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. This was a psychological study that they did at Stanford University back in 1972, where they took kids, they took children, and they left them alone in a room for 15 minutes with a marshmallow. You can imagine what happened. If they ate that marshmallow, they got to enjoy the marshmallow. But if they waited 15 minutes without eating that marshmallow, they would be given a second marshmallow, and then they could have two. It was an experiment in delayed gratification. Um, And the follow-up studies that they conducted after this revealed that those children who could do that, those children who could deny themselves an immediate pleasure in order to enjoy a future benefit, that they experienced greater overall success and happiness and happiness in their life as adults. Sometimes tempering a present joy, a joy in the here and now, allows us to experience future joys more fully. And you see this principle in effect anytime you go to a Mexican restaurant. Stay with me here. Anytime you go to a Mexican restaurant, you sit down at your table, the first thing that happens is a waiter brings you a basket of tortilla chips in salsa. And those are the best tortilla chips you are ever going to eat. They are so much better than anything you buy in the store. I don't care if it's organic or farm fresh or whatever, right? The chips they give you in the restaurant are better than that. And the waiter will keep bringing more chips. He will just keep bringing more chips and refilling that basket until the second coming. And they're so good. And so there can be a temptation there. There can be a temptation to overindulge on those chips. But then what happens? Your meal comes and you no longer can enjoy that meal because you're too full. You've spoiled your appetite. But if you were really looking forward to that meal, if you had the future joy of that meal in mind when that basket of chips was in front of you, then you treat them as what they were meant to be, just an appetizer. And you enjoy them, you enjoy a few, but you still have that appetite when the meal is served. You temper your enjoyment of the chips so that you don't spoil your appetite for the actual meal. And all of the good things that we have in this world, they're like that basket of chips. They're just meant to be an appetizer, to whet our appetite for the real meal that God has prepared for us in heaven. And I think sin occurs when we forget about that. We forget about the meal, and we think that this appetizer is all that there is. And so we overindulge in it, and we spoil our appetite for heaven. So when the angel of God comes to get us and say, the master's table has been set and the banquet is being served, come and get it, we say, no thanks, I'm full. It's like the parable that Jesus tells of the king who invites people to his son's wedding banquet and he sends people out with the invitation and they all turn him down. They say, no, I'm, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. I have to tend to my farm, I have to tend to my business. 
Why would they turn down such an invitation? Weren't they hungry? Weren't they hungry? Tempering our joys in this world keeps us hungry for heaven. And I'll give one more example. You've heard it said that good things come to those who wait. Now the Catholic Church, in her wisdom, insists that couples live apart before marriage. The wisdom of the world says that is foolish. It's foolish to wait. Why would you want to do that? How can you tell if you're compatible with someone unless you live with them first for a while, right? Living together is seen as kind of like a trial marriage. You can check it out. You can see what being married to that person is like before you make any commitments. It sounds like a good idea, but studies have shown that couples who do that, couples who live together outside of marriage, they consistently report lower levels of happiness and well-being and satisfaction in their relationship compared to married couples. And some studies have even suggested that couples who cohabitate before marriage are more likely to divorce. Now, I can only speak for myself, but I remember what it was like preparing my home for my wife in the weeks before our wedding. I had to physically make space for her in my life. Closet space, shelf space, right? And doing so helped me to spiritually make space for her. I was, I was preparing to share my life with another person, and that was a change. After our wedding, everything changed. Everything changed. We entered into a completely new phase of life. We were no longer two people living separately, but we were a couple living one life together. Life before our marriage and life after our marriage were two very different things. Very different things. And that experience of waiting and preparation, I'm certain, made our marriage better. I can remember talking with friends of ours who got married a, a year or two, I guess, after we did. And they had been living together for several years before they tied the knot. And these weren't people that we saw very often. So we were catching up with them and we asked them how their wedding went and all they could talk about was the trip they took for their honeymoon. I got the sense talking to them that their, their wedding was pretty much just a party followed by a vacation. That's what it meant to them. And they went home afterwards and their life was pretty much the same as it was before. They just had some pretty pictures to hang on their wall now. And I remember thinking, how sad. Like, I felt sorry for them, because for me, my wedding, I think back on my wedding, and that was a day that changed my life. Everything changed. You know, How sad for such a momentous occasion to be reduced to such a non-event. So yeah, the waiting is hard, but it's worth it. Good things come to those who wait, and waiting is made easier when we know we have something good to look forward to. Now, it's no accident that I use the examples of meals and marriage to illustrate this point. Because those are the same images that Jesus uses to describe heaven to us. What we have to look forward to, Christ tells us over and over again, is a wedding banquet. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we are not just guests at that wedding. 
We're the bride. It's our wedding. The banquet is for us. He spreads his table before us and our cup overflows. The season of Advent, it's a reminder that we, as the bride of Christ, we have something good to look forward to. And now is the time for us to make ourselves ready for when the bridegroom comes. The book of Revelation ends with these words from Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon. And the same passage tells us, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride, that's you and I, the bride of Christ, united with the Holy Spirit. We say, come, come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer, come, Lord Jesus. Our present life right now in this world, this is our period of engagement. It's a time of waiting. And yeah, there's a suffering there, right? Because we're, we want it so badly. We want that day to come, and it's not here yet. But it's a time of joyful waiting, too. Because as the bride of the Lamb, we have something wonderful to look forward to. Let's make ourselves ready.